0: As you're taking your seat, please grab your Bibles and turn to Judges chapter 17. If you're using a Bible in the seat behind you there or in front of you, I believe it's page 216, uh, there's something very powerful about having God's Word open on your lap, not just listening to me read through it. Um, We're about God's Word, and that's what we love diving into. Well, we're in Judges chapter 17 and 18 today. We have been going through this book Um, I'll just tell you, I am really excited about finishing this series here in three more Sundays. For me personally, this has been over a year of spending three plus days a week in the book of Revelation, and now with this series, and I'm just some days, I'm, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? I'm telling you, and I mean that very sincerely, I'm spent, I'm poured out, whew, and uh I'm just praying for God's grace to continue us through here, to get through. It's just been some dark times in God's Word with what's taking place in the book of Judges. We've been watching God's people, a called-out people, a built-up people, a brought-out people, a placed-in-the-Promised-Land people. Uh, God who put His people in a, in a marvelous place for the purpose of then them establishing themselves, growing together as a people to become a sent out people the way God had designed and God wanted them to be. And it's been some uh, 300 plus years now, uh, not that we've been going through the book, um, but uh, in the book itself. We've uh, finished off here a couple Sundays ago with the 13th judge. And who is the 13th judge? Samson, uh, he's kind of the bad icing on the bad cake as uh, the whole storyline moves along with that. But uh, we've been watching these judges, and uh, as I've gone through this, I've made note that the judges really depict the reality of what's going on holistically with God's people during this period of time. And, uh, and if it's kind of now we're in these last five chapters to where it steps out of looking at the judges, and if you weren't quite sure if that was the case, we are now, that is confirmed here in these last five chapters, because these last five chapters, we're kind of jumping off of the governor's seat, the, 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 the judge's seat, and we're stepping down into real world, we're kind of like, we live, and uh, I'm just going to tell you the whole of it, um, it looks the same. And it's not good news. And uh, I wish it was, but it's not. But I believe there's some things we can learn from it and continue to learn from it. Uh, what happens when God's people are not who they say they are? And uh, this is what we've been seeing. I'm just going to tell you today right up front with going through these two chapters. 17. We're going through two chapters today. <laughs> I sense reserve in that as well. I appreciate the cheers, though. Love you. Um, but I want to say this, um, I'm kind of coming at you, and by the way, coming at me, okay? Because we're going to see a people that are, that are in a bad place, and uh, I think out of this, after this week, just very sensitive to, oh, God, not me. Oh, God, not us. And what's really at the undergirding of all this is how they see God. We're stepping into a world here in Judges to where they're dealing in a world of physical idols. And uh, we don't have so much where we live a world of physical idols. There are in other places of the world, but really not in our world. And we don't have so much physical idols, but we do have what I'm going to call intellectual idols. And whether it's a physical idol or an intellectual idol, they're both idols. It's both idolatry. I mean, a physical idol is a physical representation of what one worships. By means of physical cutting and carving, chiseling, or casting, it's it's the material image of what one worships. It's kind of, hey, you want to see my God? I can pull it out and show you. That's what a physical idol is. An intellectual idol is different than that, but the same as that. It's the non-physical representation of what one works. It's still... Casting, carving, cutting, shaping, but it's done up here. And it's, it's this kind of thing. You want to see the God that I believe in? Let me tell you. It's put oftentimes this way. I believe, and here's the thing. The question is, is, is what I believe who God is? In fact, this whole series is oriented around two words. So what's the two words of this series? What is it? He is. He is. is. And he is. I mean, he is. (laughs) You take those two words and reverse them, put a question mark. We now have a, a, a question. And the question is Is he? He is. Is he? Now, what I am not asking by that is I am not asking, Is he who he says that he is? Because know this, he is. I mean, He is who He is. The question that I'm asking is, in your mind, in my mind, as we think about who God is, is He who He is? Let me ask it this way. Not if. But I'm pressing today, how are you and I shaping God into who we want Him to be and not who necessarily He is? What is the image of God that you have in your mind? What is the image of God that you have shaped in your mind? Because we all have shaped an image of who God is. We all have. And the question today is, is that image who He is? Or let me make a statement. If He is who I want Him to be, then I have created who He is. And that is not who he is. Instead, he is who he is, not who I want him to be. Let me read that one more time. If he is who I want him to be, then I've created who he is. And he is not who I or you create him to be. He is who he is because he is. And my goal today, and I want our goal today, is to us to be sensitive to this, because I'm telling you, for me, this is a pretty uh, fragile place to be at when you're asking and pressing into people on questioning your view of God. I mean, it doesn't get much more personal and pressing than that, but I'm going to do that today. Because we see in a text here where it's not just leadership in the time of the judges, but it's... God's people holistically. And the text that we're talking about is not talking about, if you will, not God's people. This is about God's people. And God's people have the tendency to shape God into who we want Him to be. I grew up that way. I was taught that. That's the way I was brought up. Here's my pushback. So, is that who He is? So we're going to go there today. Okay, you with me? Okay, because this gets pretty tender when you're pushing people at the very core of what they believe about who God is. All right, let's watch what happens when God's people go spiritually corrupt. Spiritually corrupt. Number one, the corruption of an Israelite home. Corruption of an Israelite home. Here we go, it's God's word, so it's all about the Him. Verse one, there was a man. There was what? A man in the hill country of where? Ephraim. Whose name was what? Micah. Micah. Just a couple comments here. This is setting us up here in this first part. There's this guy. He's a man. He's not a boy. He's, he's not a, a super old man. He's a man. He's a man. And his name is Micah, and he lives in Ephraim. Uh, Ephraim, I'm not going to bring the maps up today. You can go back to your Bible, look at the 12 tribes map that most Bibles have in there, and, and you'll see that Ephraim is right in the center of the 12 tribes. Think of Ephraim as the hub of the wheel. It's right in the middle of it. You could also think of it this way, and I think this is a really good picture. Ephraim is the heart. It's right in the middle. Ephraim is the heart of Israel. And why do I say it that way? Because in Ephraim is the town Shiloh. And in the town of Shiloh at this time is the tabernacle of God. And at the tabernacle of God, moving in, is where God's Shekinah glory resides. That's where kind of people will come together in, in a holistic fashion. And yet in Joshua, God has sent uh, Levites out to, to lead the people in spiritual. We'll come to that here in a little bit. But yet in Shiloh, that is where the tabernacle is. The Shiloh is in Ephraim. This man is from Ephraim. You're from Ephraim. Listen, I'm going to tell you, it's not like a st- It's not as big of a state. It's not that big of an area. Okay? And so that is part of the culture of who you are. You grew up with the tabernacle within your tribe. And he comes out of that. Verse 2. And this man, who came out of the heart of the religious, I'm sorry, different word, the spiritual heart center of Israel, said to his mother, Mom, uh, the 1,100, by the way, it's not like living in the basement playing video games, Kind of okay? This is where it, it's like the type of thing in that day families lived together, okay? So his mom says, Mom, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. Okay, (laughs) there's so many things about this, but let me just say it, sum it up. There is so much spiritual corruption in all of this. If you get nothing else, just get that. This is one spiritually messed up home prove it, Doug. Okay, we will do. 1,100 pieces of silver. If you were here in our series with that, in chapter 16 I believe it was, with Delilah, Delilah got 1,100 times five from the, from the five governors of five cities to uh, get Samson's secret from him. Uh, remember when I talked about that? 1,100 pieces of silver at that time. Uh, that's a huge amount of money. She got 5,500, but, but in that day 10 pieces of silver was the average wage. How many pieces of silver was the average wage? So right about each month, round numbers, you got one piece of silver, okay? For a month of work, you got a little piece of silver. Okay? And he stole 1,100 pieces of silver. That's 110 years of salary. 110 years of salary. Now, I know everybody has 110 years of salary saved up. And you're holding that, and it's come from generations in the past, and you've added to it. Ever? Don't you don't? <laughs> okay, listen, this is a multi millionaire family. You need to understand this. And Micah stole multi millions of dollars. Whatever your salary is, a lot little, multiply by 110. And if someone stole that from you, I'm guessing you would not be happy right? 110 years of work. And Micah stole it from his mom. Mothers, right now, you should be thinking, I do not like this man. And guys, we have to say, seriously, dude, that is pretty sick. It's one thing to take some money out of mom's purse. It's another thing to maybe take the couch. It's another thing to push the car. Now I'm getting irritated. Take the car. But 110 years of salary? Micah's got some character flaws. Agreed? Mike has got some issues. And mom... In this, mom uttered a curse. Micah hears the curse, and then he confesses. Uh, Listen, Micah didn't repent. Micah didn't come to see that this was wrong before Yahweh, his God. None of that. Someway in this, mom communicated a curse. And I'm guessing after 110 years of salary being stolen, that was a pretty good curse. And when he hears the curse that mom lays out on whoever stole it, in his mind the curse is so bad that it's worth giving back 110 years of salary. And he gives the money back not because he knows it's wrong, but because he doesn't want the curse. There's a whole spiritual voodoo thing going on here in his mind. Like he thinks mom can call a curse down? Apparently, he does, and he brings the money back. And then mom, at the end of it, she said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. Mom, I am so not getting that. There's a whole parenting session that could be done in that. Let me just say this. Parents, condemning and harsh parenting is not biblical. But also know this. Excusing parenting is not biblical either. By the way, parenting conference coming up in September. Tag it down. And then she says, by the Lord. This is just all funkified. Let's just keep going. It gets better. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord now, are you right now, are you in your mind, are you thinking, okay, I gave the 1,100 pieces back, and she says, I dedicate to the Lord." are you not thinking as you read this that it's like all 1,100 pieces, can we agree on that? Okay, all 1,100 pieces, that's clearly what I think the narrator is giving us the sense, the writer is giving us the sense going on. I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. Mom, What? You're now giving this this bounty of money to have idols made. Listen, friends, you have to keep in your mind... These are not pagan people, these are not Canaanite people, these are God's people in Israel who were placed in this place and during this time are to be established, to be maturing together, to become healthy and growing together, that they would become then a sent out people, priests to the world, and this is what's happening in a home there. And this is not just one home, but this is representative of the heart of what's happening in the homes there. Dysfunctionality. Corruption, spiritual corruption. She's asking her son to have him make idols to worship. Verse 4. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith. Wasn't there 1,100? And she dedicated 1,100 unto the Lord. By the way, usually when that was done, that would ha- commonly have something to do with taking it at the tabernacle and giving it unto the Lord. Now, 200 of. Uh, no. If I have this right, there's another 900 pieces of silver that, I don't know, it's going on Amazon or something, right? I'm telling you, it's really interesting. By the way, you may be saying 200 pieces of silver it doesn't sound like much to make these silver and uh, carved images. No, no, no. 200 pieces of silver is 20 years of salary. I would guess whatever you make, you take 20 years of whatever you make, I'm guessing you can make a pretty cool idol. Agreed? Yeah. Yeah. He gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image, and it was in the house of Micah. It was in the house of Micah. Uh, Verse 5 and the man Micah had a shrine in his house, and he made an ephod. An ephod is what the high priest wore of Israel, and household gods. And ordained one of his sons who became his priest. Okay, can we just all right now, everybody say freaky together? Okay, one, two, three. This is sick. This guy is making his own tabernacle in his own house with an ephod, with idol gods, and he ordains one of his sons. I mean, seriously, I realize this, you know, if I had our son Luke here, I would totally bring him up right now, and I would put him here and say, Lord, I want to, or or, Luke, I want to ordain you as a priest to me. All of you would be going, ooh, something's not right. I would hope you would, okay? But Micah, for some reason, for Micah and for his mom, all this is okay, and for his son, all this is okay. Again, these are not Canaanites. These are God's people. Spiritual uh, corruption has completely invaded the Israelite home. Friends, it's not just about the judges. It's in the homes. Verse 6, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his or her own eyes. Comment. In those days, there was no king in Israel. I do not understand the text is telling us that, so we would walk away going, now, if there was a monarchy, this wouldn't be happening. I don't think that's what this is saying. It's this idea that there is no king in Israel. Uh, there is no leadership in Israel leading the people towards the God. It doesn't really matter because that sentence goes with the next one. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In other words, it's this. Everyone was their own king. Everyone was functioning as their own king, their own queen of their own little kingdom. And we never do that, do we? No, when I go through life, I'm never my own king of my own little kingdom, and you're not that way either. Sarcasm, in case the media gets a hold of that, it's just sarcasm. Here's the reality, friends. Every one of us While we may not have 110 years of salary saved up and we may not have a particular scene idol in our house, here's the question that comes out. Who is the God of our homes and what does He look like and is He who He is? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Can you imagine living in a day like that? Can you just imagine living in a culture like that? Like maybe even a nation like that. Where like everybody just does what... uh, That's what I believe. Does that not sound like today? Total today. And in fact, the God of our day is you cannot offend anyone. Because everyone can choose what is right in their own eyes. This is our world. And this is the challenge of every day in our own lives. They did what was right in their own eyes, the corruption of an Israelite home. Second, corruption of the Levitical leadership. Let me make two comments before I go there. Number one, biblical living is submissive living. Biblical living is a submissive life. It is a submissive life. It's, I am not the king. He is. It is not about my preference. It is not about my personality. It is not about my upbringing. It is not about your will or your glory. It's about His will and His glory. Why? Because He is. Is He? Biblical living is a submissive living. Biblical faith, by the way, is a revealed faith. Now listen, uh, biblical faith is not a, I get to shape my own faith. That's everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. Biblical faith is a revealed faith. It is a founded faith. It is a communicated faith from God's Word. I don't add to it. We don't work it. It is a revealed faith. We have a submissive life and a revealed faith. And by the way, if as I talk about these things like this, there is probably a tendency within each of us that bothers us. Where it's like, wait a second, but I don't like to live in submission to anyone else. And I don't like to be told that this is what it is. No one tells me what to do or how to live, whether that's in big capital letters or whether that's in a very small font. Is that not within us? We don't like that. But here's the thing. My just bringing that to the table shows this thing that we love to be our own king and queen. We go through life as though we're the king and everyone else are my subjects because this is my kingdom you are my subjects, and I am the king or the queen. And watch yourself this week. I promise you, you and I wrestle being our own king and our own queen every day. It's in the home, the corruption, spiritual corruption of the Levitical leadership. This gets really personal for me and and those of us in leadership, because it's not just in the home, it's even the leadership. Verse 7, now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. Pause couple things. He's a young man. That's not a talking down to, but you'll see as you read through this a number of times, it mentions that this Levite is a young man. And, and, and I love young. I love this, quote, millennial generation. Uh, there are so many things that are going on in how you're thinking and how you're asking. Uh, I love so much that so many millennials want to have an impact and not just get through life. They want to have something of substance going on, but but I will also say this: in whatever age you're at, there's something about youth that you don't know what you don't know yet. You just don't, and you think you do. I did, and you don't. And I'm 54, going on 55, and there are things that I don't know. And yet, here's a young man, and I just add that in there because the text multiple times brings, he's a young man of Bethlehem and Judah, the family of Judah, and he was a Levite. He's a Levite. He's a Levite. Okay, a Levite was going back in the scripture. Levites come out of, the, come out of Aaron, come out of uh, that, and, and they then, when they came into the promised land, God in, uh, what was it, God in Joshua 14, the Levites are sent out to cities, there to be, like in modern day terms, there to be the priests, there to be the pastors of the cities. they had no land of inheritance. Their inheritance was serving as God's priesthood, okay? They are the the ones leading God's people to what God wanted them to be. They're the pastors, if you will, with that. And and Joshua 21, they're sent out to 48 cities. God strategically places them around these places within Israel. It's not a big country. And God then has the tabernacle, and, and, and he has a structure put in place, and he's a Levite. He's a pastor, priesthood, reality kind of thing, and he's sojourning. I tell you, any Hebrew in the day that was reading this, when they came up and they would see a Levite, and the fact that he's sojourning, they would be going, why? Because God has sovereignly placed you in a place to minister there, and now you're sojourning. Levites did not sojourn around. Finding the best church with the most people and the best pay. Now, this one was sojourning. Verse 8, and the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. Again, a Hebrew at the time would be going, what in the world? And as he journeyed, he came in the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said, I am a Levite of Bethlehem. In Judah, and I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, Stay with me, and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year, and a suit of clothes, and you're living. And the Levite went in. Oh, okay. Young man sojourning trying to find a better deal. I don't know why he left. I don't know what's behind why he left, but that was not normal. No way am I saying pastors can't go to other churches. I'm not talking about that, but in this day, how this was set up, this was an odd thing. So he's, he's coming along. He comes to Micah's house, like a uh, big house, multimillionaire house, a- and there's Micah, and Micah's, hey, who are you? I'm a Levite. And I'm A Levite? This is awesome. Hey, son, whom I ordained to be the priest, you're out. I got a real Levite now, man. And so he's like, dude, you're my best friend. And by the way, do you see the text? I'll pay you 10 pieces of silver a year. That's the average wage. And then I'll give you the the, the priesthood clothes for it. Oh, and by the way, I'll pay for your living. And, 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 And young Levite here is like, woo, cash out, man. This is awesome. This is like, what is it, Mr. Collins, pastor of Lady Catherine de Bourgh. You know what I'm talking about? Pride and prejudice? Come on, I'm man enough to say it. (laughs) I'm the pastor of Lady Catherine de Bourgh. That's what's happening here. That's what's going down here. And listen, that's not what God designed it to be. There were no personal priests, and yet Micah thinks it's all okay, and actually out of it, thinks that out of this whole little goofball of a structure, that it's all good, and God's good with it. And the Levite, verse 11, was content to dwell with the man. And the young man became to him like one of his sons. That's interesting. His priest, but like a son. Verse 12, and Micah ordained the Levite. Where in the world does someone, not from the tabernacle or from the Levitical tribe or Levitical line, think that they can ordain a Levite? But Micah did. I'm even going to go a little bit further here just for a second. There is something about wealth that has a way of making you think that you can because you can. I'm not going to go any further with that. and Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as my priest. A couple things. I'm especially talking with those who are, certainly including myself, involved in... um, some kind of leadership role, pastors, elders, small group leaders, area leaders, be careful. We need to be very careful. There's something about it that we can authoritarianize our leadership. We can go proud with our leadership. (laughs) We can even shop around our leadership like the young Levite is doing here. Sometimes we can ignore our leadership call And sometimes we can use our spiritual leadership for self-benefit. Be careful. With that, I'm going to note this. Ministry and serving people, this applies to all of us, is really inconvenient. Let me say that again. Ministry is really inconvenient. serving is really inconvenient but we're called to serve and one of the things that's going on in churches today is churches are designing themselves to be a cruise ship to where people come and the church is a destination to have be all about me. Instead, the church is not a cruise ship to come and to have a party. The church is a place to come and worship the Lord in a together fashion and serve one another and to be moved somewhere further than we are. Being a small group leader, serving in our kids' ministry... It is really inconvenient. And we have a tendency like the young man to look for what is the most convenient ministry. Be careful. When one's faith is corrupted like what's happened in this home. When one's spiritual leadership is corrupted and it's operating outside of God's revealed words, God's people as a whole become corrupted. Watch what happens here. Number three, the corruption of an Israelite tribe. We've seen from a home, we've seen in the spiritual leadership And now we even take a bigger view here of an entire tribe. And I'm just going to work my way uh, through this whole chapter. Uh, So let's go. Chapter 18. In those days, there was no king in Israel. We have the statement again. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in, for until then no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. It's really, really interesting, because if you go back in it, God did have an inheritance for the tribe of Dan. Now, when with Joshua, when God brought his people, put them in the promised land, God gave the 12 tribes, who, by the way, during the whole time in the desert were structured around the tabernacle, each of the tribes were placed when they were staying camping where they're camping, and now God brings them into the promised land, and you have these 12 tribes that are there, and God gives each of them some specific territory. Now, the the, the Levites, that was a unique branch of people out of the Israelites, were not given land, they were given the priesthood to oversee that, but you have these 12 tribes, and God did give the people of Dan a territory. 300 years earlier from this. But the deal was is that the tribe of Dan did not want to act on faith for over 300 years and be obedient to what God called them to do to go into the place that God called for them to take it over. And now, 300 years later, they're talking about we want our own place. And by the way, here's where it all goes bad. I'm not going to go into the details further than this, but here's what all goes bad. The place that God gave them to be, they're even going to not make that quite the place that they end up in. I'm going to keep reading. Seeking its own inheritance, verse 2. So the people of Dan sent five able men from a whole number of their tribe, from Zor and from Eshtael, to spy out the land and explore it. It sounds a little bit like Joshua way back in uh, years and years and centuries ago. And they said to them, go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. That's quinky dink. Uh, to the house of Micah, and they lodged there, verse 3, and when they were by the house of Micah, they recognized, this is really interesting, I don't fully understand it, but I'm going to take Scripture as it says it, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. They didn't recognize who he looked like, but they recognized his voice. I don't know if maybe he was like a radio preacher or something. (laughs) I'm just kidding. You know, so uh, there was a familiarity, and so they get to Micah's house, and they hear this young priests speak, and they're like, we know that voice. We're not told anything about how they know. But it's just letting us know that they know this guy. Somehow they know this guy. Let's keep working. And they turned aside and they said to him, the Levite, who brought you here? That's an interesting question, by the way. No one brought him here. He came by himself, and he shouldn't have been doing it that way what are you doing in this place? Good question. What is your business here? Good question. And he said to them, well, this is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. And they said to him, Israelite, Levitical priest, what are you doing? This is not God's call on your life. This is not how you as a Levite are supposed to be. There is no thing in the Pentateuch about you being a private priest to a really rich guy. No, it doesn't say that. But God's people should have said that. Because he was out of bounds. And yet in it's so intriguing, God's people, watch what happens. They don't see anything wrong with any of this. Because their hearts are spiritually corrupt to what God has said and God has called for them to be and to do. And they said to him, well, inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey which we are setting out will succeed. Because it's all about success. And the priest said to them, go in peace. The journey, was he, was he like, go in peace? The journey in which you go is under the eye of the Lord question. Young Levite, I've got to be really careful here, but how the heck do you know? Truth of the matter is, the Lord is sovereign. The Lord is sovereign, and the Lord is always working. But at the same time, here is a guy that is so out of bounds with following God's call in his life and what he is doing. He is doing everything wrong, and yet now he declares the Lord's in on it. I'm just going to tell you, this shows what happens when God's people get so far away from the Lord, but they still tie themselves to the Lord with these little religious words. And it's like, and the Lord does not speak at all in either of these chapters, but he knows. Verse 7, then the five men departed, came to Laish, and saw the people were there, and they saw how they lived. In other words, they came into this land that they were looking at, and, and they saw that, wow, they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians. It's quiet. It's unsuspecting. It's lacking nothing that is on the earth. And it possesses wealth, and how they are far from the Sidonians, and had no deals dealings with anyone. It's like the perfect place to live. It is like a... a a suburban home area where the light is always on, and everybody loves each other, and life is easy, but actually isn't it interesting? They live in security, they're quite unsuspecting, lacking a possessing wealth, and plus on top of that, you don't have to deal with anyone. When they came to their brothers of Zor and Eshtia, all their brothers said to them, what do you report? And they said, arise, let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good, and will, uh, will you do nothing? In other words, go, uh, do not be slow to go, to enter in and possess the land, and as soon as you go, you will come to the an unsuspecting people, and the land is spacious, and God has given it into your hands, and I ask, how do you know that? How do you know when you are a people that has not been functioning within God's will for over 300 years, and now you're even moving in a territory that is not necessarily even all that God gave to you, how do you know that? Again, it's these religious talks throwing the Lord around, a place where there is lack of nothing that is in the earth. Sounds like a great place to move to. Verse eleven. So six hundred men of the tribe of Dot tribe of Dan, uh, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zoraneshtale, went up and encamped in this place, and on account of that place they called it this, and then place, place, place. And they passed. Verse 13, from there to the hill country of Ephraim came to the house of Micah. Quinky dink, they come there. Verse 14, then the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish said to their brothers, do you know that in these houses there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now, is that not sad? It, listen, I, I would hope, <laughs> put this I would hope, I didn't use this for service, I would hope that if Karen and I came over to your house and we like came in and had dinner with you, I would hope we would not come in And there would be like an ephod sitting in the Peterson's, you know, living room. And that there would be idols all. I would hope that would not be happening. But this is what the Israelite people are walking into their house and seeing all this stuff. And yet they're not even bothered by it. Now therefore consider what you will do. In other words, make a plan. And verse 15, and they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now the 600 men of the Danites, armed with the weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate, and the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up, entered, took the the carved image, the ephod, and the household gods, and the metal image. That's now the second time the narrators told us exactly what's in the house. While the priests stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took third time, the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, and the priest said, okay, you got it? They want you to know, they walk into the millionaire's house, and there is this travesty of ungodly things, and they said to the priest, what are you doing? And they said to him, keep quiet, or the priest said, what are you doing? And they said, keep quiet, put your hand in your mouth. And come with us and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be priest to the house of one man or to be priest to a tribe and clan in Israel? Pause. Is it better to be a pastor to 12 people to twelve hundred. Well, twelve hundred. I mean, bigger's better, right? May I just make a note? In three years of Jesus' ministry, he had twelve guys hanging around him. Twelve guys. One of them bailed. I say like, friends. There is a temptation in ministry to make the ministry all about yourself and success. And we cannot do that. I cannot do that. You cannot do that with your small group. We cannot do that back in our little class with the kids. To become our own little king or queens over the kids. These are God's people. Anyway, verse 20, and the priest's heart was glad. Why was the priest's heart glad? Because boom, he just made it to the big leagues. He went from being a priest in a home to now being a priest over a tribe of Israel. So he took the ephod and the household gods. The Levitical priest took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. Verse twenty-one. We'll read to Dan real fast. So they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. And when they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out, and they overtook the people of Dan, and they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, "What is the matter with you that you come with such a company?" And he said, "You take my gods that I made, and my priest, and go away. What have I left?" By the way, do not feel too bad for this guy at all because he stole 110 years of salary from his mom and he's made idols and gods. Verse 25, And the people of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us lest we kill you, blah, blah, blah. Verse 27, But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priest who belonged to him and they came to Laish to a people quiet and unsuspecting struck them with the edge of the sword, burned the city with fire, and there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob, and they rebuilt the city. They lived there, and they named the city Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born of Israel, uh, but the name of the city was Laish at the first, and the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. Pause real quick. One of the things about the Old Testament, you will find throughout the Old Testament that it talks about how Dan is the center of cultic worship. Why did Dan become the center of cultic worship? You now know. Judges 17 and 18 tell us how Dan, that tribe, became a center of cultic worship. And Jonathan... The son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribes of Dan. By the way, it's so interesting. This is the first time we have a name for this le- young man, Levite. It's all been neutral. He's been called a young Levite all this time. I think the reason for that is because the, the author is helping us to understand. This, this, is, this is descriptive of what's taking place in all the spiritual leadership of the day. And this is one story like the judge's telling of the whole. But do you see this? This one young Levite was not only a Levite, but he was in the lineage of Moses. And Moses, who is the one who led God's people, brought them out in the desert, leading them through, coming to the place of placing them in, and Joshua takes over, Moses, God's man in this time, and you go down just a a short few generations, and you find his grandson at whatever level of time here, his grandson is now the priest of idol worship. God's people have gone from that to that in a few generations. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. Over the course of the book of Judges, we've been watching God's people And they've been living in this amazing time in history of the Old Testament. The book of Judges is telling about this period of time when God's people, after having been placed in this new sending based place, a place there, God's people are to be growing into a healthy, strong, established people, to be praised to the world. And yet what we find them as being none of that. They're killing each other, they're using each other, and Yahweh has gone from their homes, from the spiritual leadership, from the tribes, from the judges, the governors. And instead of doing and being what God has called them to be, we find them doing and being what is right in their own eyes. And they have no king because they're not in need of a king because they are their own king doing what's right in their own eyes. And friends, this has been a long text today. I just ask for you to hang in there on this. This is our world. And I need for us to understand this. What's being talked about is not not God's people. What's being talked about, what's happening here is happening with God's people. That's the context. That's the context. All of this that's going awry, this isn't happening with people out there. This isn't happening with people who could give a rip about the Lord, who are unsaved, who are pagans, whatever we want to call it. It's not talking about it. This is describing God's people within the walls of it, and they are going down. They are the ones that are doing what's right in their own eyes, and friends, I'm just so burdened about this, because this is our world, and the church is doing what's right in our We have people who are cutting out books of the Bible because it doesn't fit within their theological preference. We have people who are saying, well, I don't like that, or I don't do that, or this is what I believe. It doesn't matter what you believe. It matters who he is. And we think that we can come in and fabricate and form and construct intellectually. It's it's idolatry. And instead we're to be submissive. And we're to come in and, oh God, who are you? I want to know who you are, not who I want you to be. And whoever you are, I will place myself under who you are, not who I want you to be. And in our churches across the globe, we are carving, casting, and creating our own view of who God is. And if it is not who He is, it needs to change. And so I ask you to head out this week with this. This week, watch Yourself on who you see God to be. When life pushes, when things happen, who is God right now? What is my view of God? What is my view of God that I think it's okay for me to be able to lash out in anger? What is my view of God if I think it's okay for me to be able to be critical or harsh? What, 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 what am I thinking about God if, if I think I can go and, and, and enter in the porn world? What, what, what am I thinking about God if, if I'm doing this? Listen, we all struggle with sin, but, 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 but I think at the very core of it, it has to do with who we view God as. And I'm just asking this week. May we be sensitive to who he is and who we are seeing him to be. And let's be honest. Oh, God, show in me how I need to see you more rightly. And so, Lord, that's our prayer. And we leave it there. And we ask you, Lord, oh, please, would you just help us? We're needy people. We're fragile people. We're broken people, and yet what's so exciting, God, is you're moving among just even here us among a people. We're here because we want to know you. We want to know more of you. I don't think we would be here if that was not the case. So today, while this is a long and hard message, honestly, for me to communicate across and press into us, I just pray the Spirit of God would, would do a work in us. We would be increasingly sensitive about who you are. You would help us to see who you are. God, not who you are by who, by who we want you to be, but who you are because of who you are. So we're here, Lord. I pray we would press into your word. You would press into us to show us who you are. Thank you for what seems like your unending patience. You are who you are. In Christ's name we pray.